Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. In today's episode, Sarah and I are going to discuss the aesthetics of fascism. And uh, as you can imagine, one of our motives for wanting to record this episode right now is because in our current political climate, the phrase fascist is uh, frequently used sort of being bandied about by people on both the right and the left to describe politicians that people don't like. Uh, So in today's episode, we wanted to unpack uh, the question, what is fascism? And it's an interesting topic for art historians to consider because fascism is not only a political ideology or set of beliefs, but also it's strongly associated with a particular visual style. So in other words, fascism seems to be almost as much an aesthetic as it is a political position. Another reason that we wanted to uh, look at this topic of of fascism right now is because one of the primary examples of the fascist aesthetic is the 1936 Olympics, which was held in Berlin uh, in Germany under Adolf Hitler. And the 80th anniversary of the 36 Olympics is, of course, this year. We just finished the 2016 Olympics, and everyone has Olympics on the mind. So between the political climate and everyone talking about fascism and the fact that we just had the close of the Olympics, which um, at a certain point in its history was closely aligned with fascist aesthetics, we thought now might be a good time to think about this question of, of what do we mean by fascism in art history. As always, before we delve into a topic, it helps to define our terms. We don't want to get overly technical um, about what we mean by fascism. Of course, this is a a topic of, uh, extended debate amongst political theorists and historians, uh, we are going to take our definition from uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can consult their lengthy entry on fascism for yourself. We'll put a link to it from our website. As the encyclopedia explains, the modern use of the word fascism takes its origins from the fascist party of Mussolini, who took the name of his party from the Latin word fascis which refers to a bundle of elm or birch rods, usually containing an axe, used as a symbol of authority in ancient Rome. That's pretty much a verbatim quote from them. Um, And I'm going to go on reading here because I think it's pretty helpful. Uh, Although fascist parties and movements differed significantly from each other, they had many characteristics in common, including extreme militaristic nationalism, contempt for electoral democracy, and political and cultural liberalism, belief in natural social hierarchy and the rule of elites, and the desire to create a Volksgemeinschaft, which is German for people's community, in which individual interests would be subordinated to the good of the nation. So end quote there. So fascism, uh, just to recap, uh, the word in its modern usage directly comes from uh, Mussolini's fascist party. It now refers to a large cluster of political movements mostly evolving in the early 20th century, although, of course, we have the sort of rise of neo-fascism, which we'll talk about later in this episode. Um, If it's not a single movement, it does have certain sort of characteristics that manifest in all the various different 
uh, fascist movements that we see in the history of the 20th and 21st century. So one of those characteristics is opportunism. So um, essentially saying something just because you think it will be politically expedient, because it will win over the people, um, not necessarily because it's an authentic belief that you hold yourself or a principle. Um, preying on people's sense of insecurity and vulnerability. Um, so, for example, playing on people's fear of an impending revolution, um, fear of immigrants, a desire to consolidate power over formerly independent institutions and organizations. Um, and this is not simply a matter of bureaucracy. You know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, big government. It's actually about creating a, a total uniformity of message from the top down uh, about silencing dissent, right, and creating a homogenous worldview so that when you go to church and when you go to school um, and when you go to your sporting group, you're getting the same message over and over and over about, for example, one must, you know, submit totally to the will of the Fuhrer. Imperialism, another characteristic of fascism. So basically, and again, imperialism is one of those huge words that means a lot of things, but basically it means that the fascist nation, because it believes in its own inherent sort of superiority, has a right to colonize or exploit other nations. So um, sort of like the concept of manifest destiny here in American history that we're so familiar with, right? The, the imperialism is sort of a manifest destiny on steroids. Um, finally, we have misogyny, racism, xenophobia, um, the suppression of, of queer sexualities and identities. And this is all in the name of purifying or consolidating the people uh, into a single homogenous image. So everyone uh, can believe themselves to be all part of one sort of family that's ruled over by this one paternalistic authority figure. Um, so these are some of the major traits that we associate with fascism. In terms of the personal traits um, that we associate with people who are really into fascism or with fascist leaders, uh, we think of obedience, discipline, fitness, uh, literally meaning physical fitness. Um, fascist leaders often tend to be really charismatic and inspire. I mean, they're authority figures that inspire people to be obedient. They also tend to appeal um, to people's emotions rather than their intellects. So they have a very sort of hot, impassioned rhetoric. Think basically the opposite of Barack Obama, and that is the um, sort of like fascist mode of address. Politically, where did fascism come from? I'll be very brief. Most of the sort of major historians consider that it emerged out of the backlash to the revolutionary movements happening in Europe from the end of the 18th century onwards. So the more revolutions um, that Europe experienced, the more that society was destabilized, the more people became you know, attracted towards a model, a social model, a political model that offered some kind of stability, right? And that's what fascism is ultimately about. It's about total stability achieved through total homogeneity and total control. It is primarily associated with Europe, although it certainly had adherents in the US, South Africa, Japan, Latin America, and the Middle East. Major examples of, of fascist uh, leaders, aside from Mussolini, leader of the fascist party, also Hitler right, uh, in Germany, uh, Francisco Franco in Spain, um, and one could even argue that the KKK here in America was also sort of a fascist organization. In terms of where this intersects with art, um, a quick digression, uh, perhaps the most famous example of sort of fascism in art history is actually a response against fascism, and that is the work of Pablo Picasso called Guernica, which Picasso made 
as a way you know, of drumming up support amongst Europeans and the rest of the world community against Franco and his allies and what they were doing to the people of Spain, specifically triggered by the bombing attack on Guernica. I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about what we mean when we say fascist aesthetics. And I promise we will eventually get to discuss some really concrete things, but we thought it would be really helpful to just keep defining these terms uh, at the outset here. So uh, fascist aesthetics, I mean, probably the most important thing is the return to a more conservative notion of beauty and uh, a more conservative interest in the human figure. In the final years of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, we saw the rise of successive movements like fauvism and symbolism and futurism and cubism and expressionism, each challenged or undermined the traditional way of representing the human body in a naturalistic fashion. So they were taking liberties, they were changing uh, the color of skin tone from sort of a peach to say green or purple. Um, they were changing the anatomy so that figures would have, um, you know, sharp angles where one might normally find elbows. Um, and, you know, each movement had its own reason for doing this. But basically, this entire uh, period of experimentation with figurative art uh, comes to an end and is replaced by a renewed interest in naturalistic depiction of the human body. And that's in part because the human body becomes a very potent uh, symbol of the supremacy of the Third Reich and of the fascist in Italy. Beyond this renewed fascination with naturalistic depictions of the human body, we also see some compositional principles that have always been associated with quote-unquote classical art. And these would be harmony, balance, and symmetry. And Sarah is going to talk more about these um, in a minute when she talks about architecture. Finally, I want to point out that symbolism is also really important for fascist aesthetics. And of course, this is not something that's unique to fascism. Pretty much all modern forms of government uh, rely on symbolism. And to a certain extent, the history of art is the history of the expression of, of governmental power. But with fascism, you see that the symbolism is really um, given a lot of importance. It's, it carries a lot of emotional charge. And in part, that's because fascism itself is such an emotional, um, hot kind of ideology. Symbolism that plays upon people's emotions, that inspires feelings of patriotism or of uh, unity or of hatred of other people, that symbolism plays a really major role in uh, perpetrating the fascist worldview, basically. Probably the most famous icon of early 20th century fascism is Hitler's swastika. The eagle is another one that we see quite often. And again, that appeared in, in the Third Reich, but by no means uh, unique to them. Of course, the eagle is also, the bald eagle is a, is a very important uh, symbol for us here in America. So again, not to say that this use of symbolism was at all unique to fascism, but that it definitely plays a sort of uniquely large role um, in the way that fascist governments uh, and movements communicate their ideas. To summarize all of this, I think I can say something uh, that is quite um, pithy, uh, but true. Basically, fascism is the empire in Star Wars, and fascist aesthetics is the aesthetics of the empire in Star Wars. So think of a, of a social order that is homogenous and yet highly structured, led by a supreme leader who's completely authoritarian and cannot be um, contradicted in any way, uh, a hatred of democracy and democratic principles. It's an imperialist government that is 
sort of maintaining a state of perpetual warfare, squashing rebellion, and it's also very high tech. And that's an important thing to remember, right, is that despite all of its fascination with these classical, quote unquote, or conservative, quote unquote, values and aesthetic principles, that there also is this kind of um, fetish for high tech finishes, for the most up to date machinery and, and instruments of war, uh, all in the name of expressing a kind of technological superiority. So uh, the same way that you can think of the empire in Star Wars, that it's all about that sort of molded plastic, uh, totally smooth, everything is definitely machine made, there's nothing organic about it, um, high tech materials, the same thing going on with fascism in the 20th century. It's also probably not a coincidence that when you compare the uniforms of the officers on the Death Star or the officers in the new Star Wars, they're very clearly related to Nazi military uniforms. I think there's a there's a clear line of inspiration there. Yes, yes. And I think we're not the first people to note this at all. Yes. But um, yeah. Um, in terms of fascism today, often uh, it deploys the same strategies, has the same characteristics, perhaps just sort of the, the nouns have changed. So there's different scapegoats or different weapons that are being promoted. So, for example, formerly the enemies of fascism were liberals, communists and Jews. Now uh, the enemies of fascists are non-European immigrants, like people from the Middle East or North Africa who are coming into Europe. Um, so we could say that uh, the National Front in France their slogan is France for the French, which is actually the same slogan as the French fascists of the 1930s, led by Marine Le Pen, that this national front is a kind of neo-fascist organization. The neo-Nazis that emerged in the 1990s, um, the American militia groups um, of today have some fascist tendencies, right? And then, of course, most sort of controversially, we could say that Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump seems to have some of these same tendencies, and Sarah will return to this issue at the end of the episode. I know it's come up multiple times, the um, the negative connotations with Florida and Miami in these, uh, in these episodes. And I do have to say, whenever I hear militia groups, I think of the Michigan militia. Um, so, uh, you know, my home state is not immune to uh, these kinds of negative connotations that we always see with Florida and your home state. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we'll come back to this question of fascist aesthetics and how it ties into, in particular, the candidacy of Donald Trump. And, you know, we definitely want to parse that out and not make that claim so lightly and, and talk about what the implications of that claim are. So we'll come back to that uh, in a second. But uh, before getting to the contemporary political climate, um, we do want to talk for a minute about specific example of how fascist aesthetics manifest themselves. And when we're talking about the 1930s in particular, it's really architecture where we can see this, this manifestation of fascist aesthetics. Fascist architecture is most closely associated with uh, Italy under Mussolini, so roughly from about 1922 to 1943. And we can really see initially why it would flourish, uh, why this, this particular fascist aesthetic, visual aesthetic, uh, would emerge uh, in a place and flourish in a place like Italy considering the fact that the main historical precedent for a lot of fascist architecture was 
ancient Roman architecture. So the antique past of Italy. So in that way, there, there's a, a strong national implication to the appropriation of this this antique precedent. Mussolini and and the Italian fascists were really drawing attention to ancient Rome, particularly imperial Rome, as opposed to a republican Rome. And again, with imperial Rome, we're talking more about that, uh, those ideas that Tina just brought up of conformity and consolidated power under a single figure. Um, and that was really identified as, you know, the glory of, of Italy's history up until the Renaissance, at least. The style of fascist architecture follows much of what you see from classical architecture. And if you want um, a more in-depth overview on the nature of classical architecture, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to our episode on the Elgin Marbles. The basic points are uh, an emphasis on symmetry, harmony, order, and balance. Uh, the, the same characteristics of, of, that uh, Tina brought up before. And moreover, an aim to replicate those values that are drawn from these ancient forms of government, uh, whether it's the Republican uh, Roman Republic or the Roman Empire. Now, unlike much of classical architecture or even neoclassical or Beaux-Arts architecture of the 19th century, fascist architecture has a distinct lack of ornamentation. There's a much greater sense, sense of rigidity, mostly consists of right angles, very few curves. Now, if you look back at something like the Pantheon in Rome, constructed in the, the second century AD, uh, the, the architecture and the ornamentation is relatively minimal, uh, but still when you look to the top of the columns, you have these capitals, they're called Corinthian capitals, which are characterized by having these very elaborate leaves and scrolls. And fascist structures, on the other hand, tend to have very little ornamentation like that. Lots of straight lines, um, like I said, very few curves. It, it's one of those like moments where you really can make one-to-one -one correspondence. Like the symbolism is so transparent. It's like, oh, they use right angles and create rigid structures because they're a rigid, inflexible social order. Right. <laughs> like it really is. I mean, it's like kind of reductive, but that's actually kind of how it works. Right. And it's also paradoxical when you read about fascist architecture, it's often described as very modernist, which seems counterintuitive because it's drawing from this this antique classical past that has been revived over and over again in, in myriad forms since the Renaissance, at least. Um, but it is modernist in this very simple kind of form follows function way. There's no need for superfluous decoration. So there's an interesting fusion here of tradition on the one hand and modernity uh, on the other. And that, that idea of modernity is, is also central to fascism, as, is as are traditional values. Arguably, fascist architecture had a much greater presence in Italy, and you can actually still find a lot of examples of fascist architecture in Italy, surviving examples. And uh, Tina and I have a friend who was recently in Italy and posted lots of pictures on Facebook of, of, uh, of examples of fascist architecture that still remain. Uh, but we're going to focus for a minute here on a German example, what was known as the Deutsche Stadion, uh, which translates to German Stadium, uh, just outside Nuremberg. 
The stadium was designed by architect Albert Speer, who was Hitler's preferred architect. Now, if Albert Speer's name sounds familiar, you are either a, a real lover of World War II history or you um, are a lover of light spectacles um, and like of lights like I am. So um, when I think of Speer, I think of the Cathedral of Light. And this is, it's hard to describe exactly. I mean, the effect really must have been stunning in person. We'll put an image of it up on our blog. But basically, Speer designed this for Hitler. It was installed at Nuremberg. And what he did was he took 152 anti-aircraft searchlights. So these are giant spotlights that they would use to cross the sky looking for aircraft overnight, you know, secret bombing uh, missions, for example, coming over from the Brits. Um, and he pointed them straight up in the sky and basically created a virtual space, like a virtual wall surrounding the rallying area uh, at Nuremberg. And so this was known as the Cathedral of Light, because that's kind of what it looks like. He's creating a giant, tall structure stretching up into the sky made out of nothing but electric light. And so this uh, uh, started around 33. And uh, he actually borrowed these searchlights from the, you know, they, they were anti-aircraft searchlights, and they were actually used by the military for that purpose. And so they were borrowed from the military um, they're sort of repurposed. And I think that's amazing because it speaks to the fact that, you know, Hitler and Speer and Goebbels and all of them understood that the symbolism, you know, was was almost as important as any actual military measures. So that, that using these spotlights in this way was just as significant as using them for their, you know, as actual anti-aircraft um, searchlights. The foundation stone for the German stadium was dedicated by Hitler on September 9th, 1937. And this was planned to be the largest sports stadium in the world. It would have held over 400,000 people. Um, now, Tina goes to a lot more sporting events than I do, so I don't really have a good sense of of how many people 400,000 in a sporting arena is. I know I've been to some hockey events that had less than 100,000, and that seemed like a huge number of people. So 400,000 uh, nearly half a million people in one stadium. It's a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, to give a to give a sense of comparison, I've been to two sold out games at Wembley Stadium in London, and that's 90,000 seats. And that makes it the second largest stadium in all of Europe. So 400,000. So it's four times larger than Wembley Stadium. I mean, I can't even imagine what that is. I don't know of any stadium in America that's that big. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I remember 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium was like bigger than the Super Bowl. So right. yeah, my, uh, my alma mater, the University of Michigan, our stadium, which I only went to once because I don't really care about football. But uh that is called the Big House because it's the biggest, I think, the biggest college stadium. And that's like 100,000. Um, so, yeah, 400,000 is a lot. That's the point. The idea with this German stadium was that it would host the Olympics forever. We have the system in place in which the Olympics are held in a different place every time, uh, every four years. And this was the case in the 1930s as well, in 19, as Tina mentioned, the, the uh, 1936 Olympics were in Berlin, the 1940 Olympics were in Tokyo, but Hitler's idea was that the Olympics would just be in Germany forever. Now, the, uh, the German stadium wasn't ever completed, construction didn't even get very far, 
because of the war. But we do have documentation from a scale model that was created and photographed, and that gives us a good sense of how it was supposed to look and is a good example of, of fascist architecture that also ties into this, this question of, of the Olympics. The German stadium was not actually modeled after a Roman structure, structure but a Greek one, uh, the Panathenaic Stadium in Athens. The Panathenaic Stadium was a marble stadium constructed for the Panathenaic Games that took place every four years. It was constructed in the 6th century BCE. And the Panathenaic Games uh, were basically a smaller version of the ancient Olympics, uh, not as important in the wider context of the Mediterranean, but very important for the Athenians themselves. The Panathenaic Stadium was actually where the first modern Olympics were held when they were revived uh, in 1896. The German stadium, Speer's German stadium, consisted of, or was was going to consist of, an elevated entrance structure that, that kind of looks like, a, like an, an ancient temple with a colonnaded facade, uh, behind which was a large colonnaded courtyard and this massive horseshoe-shaped stadium where those 400,000 people would sit. Although it was based technically on a Greek prototype, there are still strong Roman elements that ties it more to ancient Rome, uh, ancient imperial Rome specifically. Along the outside of the stadium would have been an arcade with arches that was much more reminiscent of the Colosseum in Rome. Also on either side of, of sort of the, the entranceway to the stadium, you have you would have had these tall pillars with eagles, with sculptures of eagles on the top. And as Tina mentioned, the eagle was this imperial symbol for the Germans. Um, they actually took that from the Romans, so another Roman symbol that they appropriated. We don't have many great, super specific images of the model, but we can make out from the images that I've seen figural sculptures on either side of the stadium entrance. And it's very likely that the figures in these groups would have been the kind of athletic, idealized, neoclassical figures of the type that were produced by Hitler's favorite sculptor, Arno Brecker. Uh, this is the guy who was responsible for producing much of the public sculpture associated with the Nazis. Uh, and his work was uh, famously on view at the Great German Art Exhibition, which was positioned in opposition to uh, the famous Degenerate Art Exhibition. This was a show which works by the Dadaists and the German Expressionists, the avant-garde artists whose works were considered uh, in opposition to German values. Another thing about the German stadium that is important to, to tie into fascist aesthetics is, as we've mentioned, it's sheer immensity. A big part of Nazi public strategy was creating these vast spaces for mass audiences. Because it was such a huge endeavor, it would have cost a lot of money to actually build. This was something that apparently didn't phase Hitler at all. And Speer wrote in his memoirs that Hitler said, quote, that's less, and I don't have an exact figure for the numbers, but 
uh, in response to the numbers, Hitler said, quote, that's less than two Bismarck class battleships. Look how quickly an armored ship gets destroyed. And if it survives, it becomes scrap metal in 10 years anyway. But this building will still be standing centuries for now, from now. So here we see the importance of this monumental form of architecture in creating a legacy for Hitler for the Nazis. As I mentioned, construction halted with the outbreak of the war. There was a lot of heavy fighting nearby, um, uh, near Nuremberg at the end of the war, and, and much of that area was completely destroyed. So now when you go to the site where the stadium was supposed to be, it's occupied primarily by this Silbersee, which was a lake that was formed as a result of excavations for the stadium. Although the foundation stone can still be seen there, it was moved at one point, but then moved back. And there's an interpretive label nearby. So that explains its significance. While the stadium that Sarah's been talking about was never actually built, we can definitely talk about uh, the 1936 Olympics, a very concrete thing that very much did happen. The 36 Summer Olympics were awarded to Berlin back in 1931 as a way of welcoming Germany back into the world community uh, after the isolation of World War I, basically. But in 33, two years after that, Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany. One of, I mean, I, I feel like this history hardly needs uh, retelling, but um, one of the keys to uh, his rise to power was his promotion of Aryans as a superior race. Um, and this was important because the German people basically had been embarrassed by um, not only losing World War I, but by the sort of aftermath of that. And telling the German people that they were the superior race gave them something to feel really good about while also allowing them to scapegoat certain minority groups as the reason that they were such a falling country that was, um, you know, undergoing a lot of economic difficulties. One of the key aspects of Hitler's theory of the superior Aryan race was that Aryans were not simply superior intellectually or morally, but that they were also superior physically. In fact, non-Aryans were barred from all German athletic organizations in April of 1933. Uh, basically, as an alternate, they ended up forming their own uh, uh, athletic organizations um, where they could only compete against each other. Very, very few uh, non-Aryans were allowed to compete in the Olympics in 36. So this idea that, you know, Aryans were superior physically as well as intellectually to other races led to a renewed emphasis on physical strength and on cultivating physical strength. So there were ads telling mothers how to raise fit children. Fitness became a prerequisite for the army. And also in art, we see this renewed classicism. So we see uh, a valorization of very traditional ways of representing the human body. And of course, this body is a heroic body. So um, no disabilities, no deformations, totally idealized and perfect. It's usually a male body. Um, women were also encouraged to do fitness exercises. But of course, it's all, you know, the heroic body by default in Western civilization is a male body. Unfortunately, but perhaps not surprisingly, at the 1936 Olympics, Germany, which had the largest team at the Games, also won the most medals out of any country, which seemed to provide support for their sort of racist idea of, of the perfect human form. Of course, the most famous counterexample of this is Jesse Owens. And if you don't know the story of Jesse Owens, I encourage you to see the film that recently came out called Race, um, although there are, you know, 
there's other research to be done there as well about telling the Jesse Owens story, but that would be a place to start. On the one hand, the Olympics were meant to be a kind of platform for uh, this you know, racist eugenic ideology of the Nazis, thinking that the Aryan race was superior to any others. But on the other hand, the Olympic Games were also just a propaganda message about the strength and power of the German nation in much the same way that today's modern Olympic Games are used to sort of uh, showcase or show off a country's major city, usually a capital city like London, uh, for example, or Tokyo. In much the same way, the Germans were using the 36 Olympics in order to show that they were the strong and united country that had totally recovered from the sort of devastation of their loss in World War I. Now, in order to put their best face forward to the rest of the world um, in in the same way that Rio um, improved its public transportation and started heavy policing of the favelas, Germany basically masked its anti-Semitic and racist policies as well as its growing militarism. And all of this history is outlined by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, and we will put a link to them up on our website as well. And as the museum explains, for the very first time in the history of the modern Olympics, there was a boycott that was called for of the Olympics because of the human rights violation of the host country. Both the United States and countries in Europe had tried to institute a boycott. Unfortunately, the boycott movement narrowly failed. While that could have been seen as a huge embarrassment to the Germans, the fact that there were 49 countries that sent teams to Germany ended up legitimizing the regime of Hitler. Hitler made sure that they put out the red carpet, that they completely dazzled the visitors, um, the athletes and the spectators, um, trying to make uh, Germany seem like a hospitable and welcoming place that had it all together. And in order to do that, one of the things they had to do was to take down all of the anti-Jewish signs um, that had been put up in Germany before the games. And these signs were taken down under the direction of the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. So the same guy who puts up these signs then has them taken down for the duration of the game, just so nobody will see what they've been up to. There's a a tragic uh, story here that um, is worth relating, and that's that the head of the Olympic Village, uh, a captain in the German army, killed himself two days after the Olympics ended because he was dismissed from military service because of his Jewish ancestry. So you can see how, you know, the the Germans' plan basically is to to keep all of their anti-Semitic legislation and uh, even literally the signage out of sight until after the games. And of course, three years after the games end, that's when Germany invades Poland and kicks off World War II. But in the interim, before, before the invasion of Poland, before the sort of discovery of all of the, the horrors of the Holocaust, the, the Berlin Olympics were basically Hitler's way of, of getting acceptance uh, within the international community. And he really you know, did fool a lot of people at the time. The last point I want to make about the 36 Olympics uh, is that it was documented by a filmmaker who had worked for Hitler. Her name is Lenny Riefenstahl. She's quite famous. You may have heard of her. Um, And so she released this film in 1938 called Olympia. And it was a two-part film. And it's 
basically a, a kind of documentary of the Olympic Games, not in the way that we might think of it. It's more of a, a kind of art project. And in fact, Riefenstahl had invented a number of, of techniques, of editing techniques that made her film absolutely revolutionary. And it's stunningly beautiful to this day. You can actually watch it on YouTube. Um, I often show clips of it when I am teaching Greek art and architecture to my students because it opens with these very atmospheric shots of Greek sculptures and you see her camera sort of studying, you know, this pinnacle of human perfection. And then of course there's these fades and the sculptures become, you know, contemporary Aryan Germans. Putting aside the sort of questionable relationship between Riefenstahl and Hitler, I mean, she had done another film for him called Triumph of the Will, which was basically about the Nazi party rallies at Nuremberg. She's then 34. And so she's um, sort of never lived that down and perhaps rightfully so. But this 38 film, Olympia, about the summer games really demonstrates Riefenstahl's genius as a filmmaker. And if you're interested, there are you know, documentaries you can find about Riefenstahl. Um, we'll put some links to that up on our blog. Um, and I, I do highly recommend watching the film because it makes so concrete one aspect of fascist aesthetics, uh, which is this, this sort of cult of beauty, and also another aspect of fascist aesthetics, which is this self-conscious modernity. And again, we've talked about how it's very paradoxical that they were looking to the past and that they wanted to embody um, you know, conservative, classical, what we might call now family values. And yet she's deploying these very avant-garde film techniques that make her film, you know, very much a, a kind of modernist film par excellence. And in fact, Olympia is often cited as one of the best films of the 20th century. It's like on all those lists that are like, you know, the top 100 films that you have to see before you die or whatever. Um, and, and deservedly so. It's really a stunning achievement. As Tina mentioned from the outset, it's not just the Olympics that led to our choosing this topic, but also the extent to which the term fascism is thrown about in the contemporary political context, particularly around the candidacy of Donald Trump. The thing that really sparked my interest with this topic uh, was an article written by Alexander Billet uh, that was published in the journal In These Times uh, in January of this year in 2016. And the title of that article is Donald Trump and the Aesthetics of Fascism. And Billet in it says, quote, more than any other American presidential candidate in recent memory, Donald Trump understands the ideological power, the raw manipulative magic in politics as aesthetics. And in this article, and of course we'll link to it on our website, he draws from, Billet draws from the work of the early 20th century cultural theorist Walter Benjamin, who was a member of a group of philosophers and critics known as the Frankfurt School. Uh, this is a group that was associated with the Institute for Social Research at the Goethe University in Frankfurt during the interwar period in Germany. Uh, included other well-known theorists like Herbert Marcuse, Theodor Adorno, and Max Horkheimer. Benjamin wrote an essay uh, originally in 1935, but there are multiple versions. Uh, and the title of this essay was long translated as The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Uh, more recently, it's been translated as The Work of Art in the Age of Its Technological Reproducibility. In this essay, Benjamin delves deeply into the question of reproduction 
in the context of modernity and capitalist modernity in particular, and he's heavily influenced by Karl Marx. What Benjamin is really responding to, well, there are a few things he's really responding to in the, this essay. One is the rise of fascism. He's living in Germany in the 1930s. When we're talking about art, he's responding to the rise of film. Benjamin saw the fascists using modern forms of reproduction like film for the purposes of political manipulation. He notes that the rise of, of film means that the most successful politicians are going to be those that function essentially like he says stars or champions. And that's why fascist dictators emerge as victors is because there's this correlation between celebrity uh, and politics and that appealing their ability to sort of appeal to the emotions of, of mass audiences. The sad end to this story is that Benjamin fled Germany, fled Nazi persecution. In addition to being a critic of fascism, he was a Jew. He went to Spain, which was, of course, under the control of the Franco government, which had agreed to turn refugees back. Uh, and knowing that he was basically going to be handed back to the Nazis, Benjamin committed suicide. Now, as Billet points out in his article, this idea of celebrity, of using media for political manipulation is where we can see the aesthetics of fascism and the Trump candidacy uh, merging. Now, of course, Trump isn't the first person to do this. We can think back to someone like Ronald Reagan, who was a movie star before he was president, or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jesse Ventura, uh, celebrities who had successful political careers as well. And while the idea of Trump being a fascist is one that's thrown around quite casually, and there are a lot of reasons for this, um, Billet and others are very careful to not equate him so easily with Hitler or Mussolini. Um, and the important thing really here, I think, for Billet is that it's the this use of aesthetics, this use of media, of of the mobilization of modern technology for the purpose of establishing relatively conservative uh, values is something that really re resembles th the way that media was used by fascist leaders in the 1930s. The subsequent question becomes, how do we combat this? according to Benjamin or to Billet. And I think for, for both of them, I think the answer, uh, and, and this is something that, again, we can see echoes in history with what's going on today, is to use art as a form of disruption rather than for the purposes of conformity like it was used by fascists. In the early 20th century, we can look to examples like Dadaism or even surrealism in its early manifestation, which was uh, radically leftist and really aimed more than anything else at disrupting what it saw as mundane bourgeois existence. And there are certainly a lot of contemporary political artists, some of whom we've talked about, people like Banksy, who look to disrupt uh, everyday life uh, for political reasons. And there certainly has been a lot of protest art that has cropped up around the Trump candidacy. 
for example, the artist T. Rutt uh, has produced multiple pieces that have gotten a lot of attention. For instance, the purchasing of a former Trump campaign bus um, and the, the slogan on the bus was changed from make America great again to make fruit punch great again. And the other side of the bunch says hashtag women Trump Trump. And this camp- campaign bus travels across the U.S., Uh, An article in Hyperallergic uh, discussing it makes an analogy to a Trojan horse. It's sort of like Trump supporters will see this bus and get excited thinking it's a campaign bus only to realize it's it's satire and that will presumably provoke anger. Um, The flip side is that people who are against Trump have actually vandalized the bus not realizing that it's satire. So it draws attention to... Uh, the emotionally driven reactions on both sides of the spectrum and and becomes a way of sparking conversation. I'm also reminded of, uh, I don't know if any of you watch Rachel Maddow, but she did a segment a couple weeks ago about the comedy duo called The Good Liars. It's these two guys who were showing up at uh, various political campaign stops for Donald Trump, for Hillary Clinton, for Marco Rubio, and doing these um, sort of pranks like at the Marco Rubio event, one of them stood up and you know said that Marco Rubio was trying to steal his girlfriend. At another Hillary Clinton event, they showed up talking about how they were so excited to settle for Hillary. Um, and you know, these guys are a comedy troupe; they're not artists. And yet, this idea of politically motivated subversion is actually um, not too far from where the early 20th century avant-garde was. Um, that same article in Hyperallergic, hyper um, the, the author Carrie Dunn points out that a lot of the protest art um, that has has arisen um, during this this presidential campaign season is very sort of clickbaity. It 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 goes for the easy obvious joke um, or uses profanity um, in in. Um, in not very nuanced ways. And uh, Dunn suggests that the anti-Trump movement is still waiting for its Guernica, tying back to that example that Tina mentioned at the outset of Picasso's response to the um, fascist bombing of the city in Spain and this this work of art that has become an icon um, for a lot of art and, and protest in the 20th century. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, you can find us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. You can also find us at our website, which is arthistory.today. And you can connect with us on Twitter. Our handle is arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. And don't forget to vote. Yes. (laughs) 